welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. First time here, uh, Michael Carnjanapricorn. How do I how do I pronounce now it? You got it right, Carnjanapricorn. Okay, cool. We are in some group chats together. Uh, we've never actually chatted. I followed your work a bunch. You know, you created Skillshare, which obviously is a you know huge education business. You created Otis, which was acquired by you know Public.com, where I'm actually an advisor there. You were at Behance, which got acquired by Adobe, and a friend of the pod, Scott Belsky, uh, started that. And then Hot Potato, which was an OG New York startup acquired by Facebook. So you've been around the block, yeah, and for seriously. Sure. And I've really been interested in your work recently because you're basically trying to figure out what's next, and you're writing, you're starting a YouTube channel about creators. And why I wanted to bring you on the pod is to talk about how you're thinking about what's next and how you're thinking about money. It's something that we don't talk too much about on this podcast, yeah. but like straight up, like let's talk about money today. Let's talk about money. I would say on what I'm doing next, I have like a, like a documentary reading at the top. It's like rest and recover and rejuvenate. So it was just like a constant reminder for myself to like, don't sprint right now, just like have fun and recover. But as I had a lot of free time, I started thinking about money and just my relationship with money. You know, I didn't really come from a lot of money, so it was really important to me to have money. And I remember when I started Skillshare, like the mission was a the big motivator. And I kind of told myself that money wasn't, but it really was. I mean, if you, you know, if you really think about what makes the internet kind of run, it is people making money, you know. Their content creators posting because they can make money and we start businesses because it makes money but it also makes us money so i think the big change for me was thinking through like what happens after you get to a certain amount and why accumulate more money when it's very marginal so i've been very fortunate to you know work in tech startups for a long time to be an angel investor to be early in crypto so I've had a couple windfalls and through that, it just kind of flipped everything I understood about money. So personally, I don't want to become a billionaire. I think every dollar over for most people, 10 million is pretty marginal. It doesn't really add anything else. I've done a lot of research into like what they call hectomillionaires. So these are people that are worth over a hundred million um, network liquid, you know, either through Reddit or just talking to people there that much. And I heard a couple of themes that people just don't talk about. Like one is you literally physically cannot spend that amount of money. It's just very difficult. So after you buy all the toys, you go through all the, the you know, hedonic treadmill of, you know, buying something and then buying the next thing to get that same feeling. There comes a point where you just don't have things to buy anymore and you get really bored and you start questioning, you know, what your purpose and your mission is. And um, I realized a lot of these people are dealing with questions around self-actualization. And I've, I noticed that they all dealt with that in a very, very different way. Um, so some people went back to work and I would say that sub, sub bucket, it was either because they were very mission driven. So they felt like they were really making huge impact in the world. And that was what they wanted to do. And some people went to go make more money because, you know, they were flying first class and then they were flying like small private jet life. And they, rode on a private jet with their billionaire friend. They're like, oh, I want that. So they went back to work. 
to, to pursue that, or it was like related to their ego or what have you. But the short answer is I think money is good and we should talk a, a lot about it, but it does become pretty marginal at some point. How would you recommend people think about what their number should be? And should they even have a number in the first place? I think people, yeah, for sure should have a number. I think everyone has a, a few number, which is basically the number you would reach where uh, you have complete control of your time. You could do whatever you want. I think, you know, for those of you that haven't read my newsletter, I decided to dedicate a few bullet points to money. And at a high level, here's kind of what I wrote about. So I just pulled it up. So one is money does buy happiness. So I found this research report that says, you know, we've been told that happiness doesn't increase above 75000 and all you really need is $75,000, and every other dollar after that's marginal. But there's this new research that shows that, you know, the well-being rises with income and doesn't really plateau. So they weren't really tracking billionaires, but I would think that it plateaus at some point. And what money can provide is financial independence, you know, which ultimately gives you freedom and allows you to choose and pick what you want to do with your time, which I think is one of the biggest factors for happiness in life is when you, you can wake up and say, I'm financially independent and I can work on my own terms. I could work on whatever I want with whoever I want and I don't have to worry. The third thing I wrote about tied to that was most people, when you read about money, it's usually related to like flexing, right? It's like, yo, I just got this new Roly or, you know, I'm just traveling around the world. I'm, you know, flying in these jets and, you know, like in the Maldives. You know, I'm human, like I like having nice things, but uh, most people should look at money as a tool to becoming financially independent, in my opinion, which gives you the ultimate luxury in life is freedom and time. So what is the right amount? So uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, Jason Calcanis wrote like a couple million, you're good. 10 million is your FU number for pretty much everyone. And 25 million, you're really dangerous. Anything above that, who cares? I totally would agree with that. I would tweak this for the average person. So I think he was referring to like people in tech. Because with 25 million, you could start any company, you know, if you have that much, you know, you could do whatever you want. I think it's like 5 million if you live in a small town, 10 million if you live in a medium sized town like Phoenix, and 20 if you're like in a major city like New York. Um, if you look at like the current, you know, treasury bills rate, it's a little under 5%. But if you have like 10 million, that's like half a million a year in passive income, which covers like, let's just say you don't have like a lifestyle like inflation or not, that's not the right word. You're not like your expenses aren't really, really high. That covers most expenses for most people. But I do, like I said earlier, I do think that money has a diminishing return. So I think for most people, the goal shouldn't be as, to make as much money as possible. It's figuring out what your number is and, and hitting that and then figuring out what your mission or purpose is basically and what you want to be doing with your time. If you want to just be relaxing and spending time with your family, do you. If you want to start another company, you can. If you want to become a content creator, if you... You just want to dabble in projects. You want to become an artist. I think that is what most people should kind of reach. And it's not easy, right? So I'm not saying 5 or $10 million is an easy number to get to, but it kind of flips the notion on its head that, you know, because everyone, like our society idolizes billionaires, but it's much more realistic to become a millionaire. And I think that should be the goal for most people. Um, not to buy more things, but there's like an acronym called FIWOOT because there's like FIRE, which is financially independent, retire early. And that didn't really vibe with me because I was like, I'm not trying to retire early. I, I have a lot of ideas, a lot of energy. And I found another acronym was like F-I-W-O-O-T, which is become financially independent, but work on your own terms or work on own terms. 
was like, dude, that's that's pretty dope. That's that's well, definitely what I want to be doing. That's our generation version of retirement. Yeah, which is like to us, retirement isn't exactly go hang out on a beach and join a golf club or something and do nothing. Yeah, we, we want to be creative and we want outlets. But one of the reasons why we want money, or I'll speak for myself, like when something unexpected comes up, maybe there's a medical emergency, maybe there's, you know, I just got a letter today that my condo building is increasing their condo fees. The feeling of in your stomach, like, oh, like, you know, that that bad feeling. I think we've all had that bad feeling of like something unexpected comes out or something's expensive. When you have money, you care less about those things. Yeah, that that's like the second order effect of having money is I think we all everyone has challenges in their life. Everyone runs into problems. That's just that's just life. But you can have obviously a life of a lot less stress when you don't have to worry about all those little things that kind of pop up on a day to day basis. And I've seen that in my own life where, yeah, that that comes across some kind of like, okay, that's not a big deal. Where when I was much younger and much poorer, I was like, dude, that, that sucks. Like, oh shit. Like that's, that's a vacation out the door or that's like a reset on savings. Like shit, I have to start over again and go from zero back up to a thousand or 5,000. So money does help. And I actually think it's a good thing if used correctly. I, yeah. I think a lot of what we see in, in, in culture today is money being used incorrectly. Like when you watch people, you know, on, social and celebrities and how they're using it it's obviously like if you, you grew poor and you want you know a new car or whatever a porsche you're like yeah you're gonna go buy it and you're gonna show that off and you're gonna feel good about that being a reminder of like where you came from but doing that constantly is not in my opinion the best use of money yeah i think you know there's money and then there's there's wealth and yeah. i think they're different to you what's the difference between money and wealth I kind of view a new version of wealth, right? Which is all the intangible things that are valuable. Let's say something as simple as like having great relationships with people, developing great experiences, learning, constantly improving, all like to like having a sense of purpose, working on things that you want to be working on. And I, I kind of view that being wealthy, whether you're a millionaire or not, right? So I kind of view that as a new form of wealth where money is just a tool that get you there, right? So you don't need money to have that version of new wealth, but money does make it easier so that you don't have to go work a job you don't want to work or things along those lines. But, and I like that distinction because from a wealth standpoint, you don't need to be rich to have that life. And I do see a lot of people with all different net worths that are very wealthy, but uh, that's kind of how I view the two. Like one makes that version of wealth easier, um, but you don't need to have the money to get there. You recently moved from from New York City, which I think is one of the most expensive cities in the world, definitely top five, to somewhere in North Carolina. Did, <laughs> yeah. did, did, did the, the concept of what J. Cal was talking about, which is, you know, a couple million dollars for a small town, $10 million for a medium town, and 20 or 25 for, you know, top tier city or whatever did that play a role into your move or was it strictly personal strictly personal i think it was in the middle of covid and pandemic 
we were living in New York, we didn't, we weren't planning on moving. It was just kind of like wife, families, North Carolina, let's just kind of go there for a few weeks and a few weeks or in a few months and a few months we're like, okay, let's just find a temporary house. And then we're like, oh, this is actually not that bad. It's kind of cool. Um, and then it went from like, are we going to stay here to like, or move back to New York? And like, oh, let's just stay here. And now it's kind of like, okay, let's plant roots. So, you know, life throws curveballs like that and you just kind of have to move with it. But what's funny is that um, while I live in like a, like I would call it like a medium, like somewhere between small and medium, like my expenses, I would argue would probably be a little bit less than New York. It's like you have a house and then you have cars and you have to put gas in the cars and, you know, like, cause in New York, you don't need to own a car. You could just take Ubers or subway or bike. So it was just kind of like on a monthly basis. It's yeah, not it's cheaper, but yeah, New York is way, way, way more expensive. But all those little things add up. Like you send your kids to like school and that private school and that costs. And yeah, so it definitely adds up if you wanted to. There's definitely a jump in, like some quality of life that you're seeing by, you know, your, your dollar goes further in North Carolina than, than oh, New York for City. sure. No, I mean, the trade-off for us was like being close to family, being yeah. close to nature because in New York there isn't, and we have today, you know, at the time we had like a three month old. So now the trade-off is like, you know, where we live is a lot more family friendly. There's a lot more things to do outdoors. New York is a very, social city it's like yeah. most gatherings are drinks food and you know cultural events but it's not like you go on a hike you know in the you know to the top of a mountain within new york if you're trying to make your your first you know million dollars five million dollars ten million dollars do you recommend that person go to new york and network a lot get those connections or do you recommend they go to somewhere like North Carolina where, you know, cost of living is a lot cheaper. They keep their costs down, their, their saving rate, you know, doubles or triples or quadruples. I think they should start something and own equity in something that compounds over, over time. And I think they should have a push versus pull strategy. So yeah, you can go to events and network, but if you're not working on anything, you know, like that networking that could lead to something one out of a hundred people you meet could change a path that could change your career. But if you'd start something, you would be kind of like a magnet that pulled people towards you. Um, it's much easier to network when you're building something. I think people younger should take a lot more risk. I think as far as where you are in that risk spectrum is really up to you. Like I talked the go after a billion dollar outcome unicorn, you know, there are only a thousand of them and the, the, the odds of getting there are very low. You could also buy a business, you know, like a boring business. You could become a content creator. You could dabble in and try a new thing every year until something hits. There's nothing wrong with getting like a $10 million outcome, like getting some savings in your in your bank account and taking a much bigger swing. Like if you want to build some a some crazy AI blockchain space spaceships, like go for it. Um, but I think it really comes down to like where you are in your career and what your risk spectrum is and what level of experience you have. But if I were in my twenties, I would start a company or own equity in something. And I would try to become, you know, a millionaire as quickly as possible. The challenge with startups is like you're liquid for some two years, seven to 10 years minimum. The odds of you building a unicorn are very slim and you can spend a decade of your life down that path and exit with nothing or, you know, a little bit above nothing. So I, I think it's not for everyone. And 
that's not what's often talked about. It's like kind of glamorized to build this billion dollar company and, and swing for the fences. But yeah, there are like a lot of companies that just don't make it through. So yeah. And they don't, they also don't make it through sometimes not even because the founder or the team didn't do a good job, but because like the macroeconomic environment mm-hmm. changes or, you know, their particular space falls out of vogue. One example of that is like friend of the pod, Julian Smith, who co-founded Breather and Breather had raised, it was basically like an on-demand office product. You know, they had raised like, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars and ended up selling for scraps because, you know, we were imploded. Yeah. People don't realize how much luck and timing goes into like majority of success, especially for what we do as te- within tech startups. You can have a great idea, but the timing is off and it just will never work. No matter how hard you try, like it just won't work. And then sometimes like you just work really hard and you're just around for a long time where it just starts working because the timing just kind of shakes out to in your favor or you can work really hard and like, you know, I'm thinking like bad run in gambling or poker. It's just like things just don't go your way. And three, five years later, you're like, shit, that didn't work. And you have to like pick yourself back up and try again. So I don't think people really factor in luck and timing. Because most people believe that if they work really hard, they will become successful. But that's, in my opinion, just not true. Like I know a lot of people that work really hard that are just really unlucky. And you know, it's just the way it is. Could we could we talk about the business of creators? I know this mm-hmm. is something that you're really you're really into right now. It's definitely in the category of like investing in yourself because there's more control at least with an audience. Like you know, why are you interested in, in the business of creators? And yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, I would actually re redo my answer. If I were in my 20s, I would either take three paths. If I had a really big idea that was really impactful for society, I would go after that, knowing that like, okay, it might not work, but I have to try. Secondarily, I would say I don't have an idea, but I want to just make money right now and then figure out what's next i would probably do like a boring business or you know something you know something that was like low risk with like medium sized returns and if i was creative and i had like a very unique point of view then i would become a content creator and the reason is i think there is going to be a shift you know from like people trusting celebrities to then trusting influencers to then trusting like like very niche content creators and the reason is because for businesses, there's usually like two big factors or three. Obviously, first is the product. Second is marketing. And third is obviously team and culture. From my experience, marketing has just become more difficult over time. As it gets more saturated, more competitive, you know, looking at all the chat GPT stuff, I like, do like <laughs> this AI shit can like write better content than most content, you know, SEO specialists. So if you look at like, any content creator or YouTuber, if you build an audience, you can kind of leverage that into anything you want to do. Like you want to leverage it for recruiting, for fundraising, or for like marketing a business that you launch. And that is something that you can do over and over and over again forever. So that's why that's what I would do. And that's actually what I'm considering doing next to my career is like providing value, building an audience, and then kind of figuring out how I can leverage that later um, and not even worrying about that right now. 
So let's talk about that. So you haven't really been a creator. I mean, you, yeah. you've been you've been tweeting, Cowboy. just kind of you, <laughs> you know you you tweet thoughts, and and you haven't taken it a professional approach to creating. And then recently, I saw you know you got a sweet YouTube setup. You created a YouTube channel. You know you're creating clips. Like you're you're doing it. So how are you thinking about your 2023 content strategy? So taking one step back, I, you know, when I stepped down from doing tech startups, I was like, you know, everything in my life to this point has been very, very planned, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. After that, I'm going to do this. And then I was like, you know what, maybe for the next six months to year, I'm just going to see where things go. I'm not going to have any grand plan. The only plan I'm going to have is I'm going to protest my health and spending time with my family, having fun. Outside of that, I'm not going to really force anything. I just want to see where things go. And the YouTube channel just happened on accident. Safwan emailed me. He used to work with Sean Perry and he wrote this really good cold email. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And the first thing I told him was like, look, I'm not, I don't want to start a YouTube channel and I definitely don't want to start one with someone else, you know? And then, you know, he kind of convinced me and then convinced me. And I was like, look, maybe I'll do it just to learn, but I'm only going to commit to like five episodes. You know, it just kind of one led to the other. So the short answer to your question is, uh, for 2023, I don't know. I'm just kind of like, I think what I'm struggling with right now is if we're trying to figure out what my niche is and what I'm going to focus on talking about. But I, I do plan on creating a lot more content in 2023. So the way I'm thinking about it is I want to create, uh, similar to you, like my own personal holding company. Within that, start or incubate something every 12 to 24 months or 12 to 18 months. First business is content and audience building. Because I don't really have any ideas I'm excited about right now, but I am excited about content. And I do look at that as giving back. And if I could like, you know, change someone's perspective about money or um, help someone take a different path to become a millionaire, like, dude, that's so impactful. So for 2023, I do pl plan on creating my own YouTube channel, possibly a podcast, um, and then keep doing what I'm doing with just Twitter and my newsletter. And and trying to do it in a way where I can be very authentic to myself and not dip too far into the cringe, you know, threads where it's like, hey, I read, I watch a thousand hours of blah, blah, blah. And here's what I've learned. Because I don't even, you know, that's not even who I am. Like, I don't spend a thousand hours researching. But um, what I'm trying to do right now, which is why I'm, my Twitter and my newsletter are so random, is trying to figure out like, yeah, wh where, what is the intersection of multiple things that I'm interested in that can help people? Right now, it's money because that's just what I'm thinking about. But I don't know, maybe three months, it could be something completely different. From an outsider perspective, I mean, I love all your stuff. Oh, thanks. I, and I'm really interested in it. And to me, it's like the niches that you're in are personal holding company, money, and the business of creators. Like, that's what yeah. I see. Oh, I like that. I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> I think, though, and we can use this as just like a live jam session, I think that if you want to be a you know a successful creator, you have to be known as the X gal or Y guy in one niche. Yes, because like in people's brains, they just like bucket you as someone. Oh, Mike, he's like the personal holding company guy. Uh, oh, Greg, he's like the community guy. Yeah, and I think that you'll start seeing a lot more compounding once you commit to one one yeah. of those categories so thought about this and I, i've been 
you know, if we're doing a live brainstorming, I kind of look at like a major and minor, like you have to be known as the X guy, but you can have like a couple minor things that you talk about, you know, secondarily. And what I actually want to talk about is like, how can one person live a really great life? And what does that mean? But, you know, what I've learned is that nobody really wants to read that or click through it. And it's just not that exciting for people. And I was like, that's why I've learned because I've written threads and articles or tweets on happiness and all those things. And like, I think when, you know, people are dealing with their own shit, they're like, dude, I don't want to read this stuff. Then I started, then I flipped and I was like, okay, what, what am I the most uncomfortable talking about? And it was money. Um, and I was like, okay, why is that? One is like from an ego standpoint, I want to be known as a money guy. Like, what, is, what does that even mean? Like, I don't have, I have money, but it's not like I'm like that rich, you know? So that was like one. Two was like, okay, shit, where do I even take this from here? Because I don't want to become like a fintech influencer on YouTube and promoting like stocks, you know, like, like stocks and like, you know, how to flip your house on Airbnb and all this other stuff. But then I realized it's like, okay, um, people seem to like that content and it could back in into that secondary minor stuff around how to live a good life or how to be a good parent or, you know, how to like live healthy or, you know, cause I am going to probably do a personal holding company and I might do a startup studio within us. I could talk about that stuff too. Cause it's all related money. So I think I am leaning towards the money angle and just doing it. That's not like how to make a million dollars, you know, drop shipping or buying boring businesses, but doing it, you know, becoming content creator or, startup studio or you know basically like how i would make money or how i am going to be making money and just talking about that i think this is a really good exercise for everyone which is if you believe that content is important i mean 99 of us would agree that having an audience and creating content is really important thinking about a venn diagram of where you want to hit so you you know in the middle you need my opinion like be known as the X or Y guy or girl, right? So like for me, it's like the community guy. And, but I, I also have some minors. So I, I also have like, I'm interested in Web3. I'm interested in, you know, product design. That's why we run an agency. Like, and, and you can kind of like have these other interests. Yeah. Um, and for you, maybe it's li like living a wealthy or happy life. And maybe there's these tools and miners like, you know, personal holding company rolls into that. I've never been happier in my life. And I like you, I've done the venture back startup thing, but the, the personal holding company has, has been so fun for me and it's helped me live a happier, healthier yeah. and wealthier life. So it all rolls up to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe a couple follow-up questions to that is like how did you land on being the community guy and was that something you resisted and have you ever thought about changing that like as you have grown and then the second is like why like why don't you why don't you talk about your holding company more online because i'm like i think when we're chatting about what to talk about on the podcast you're like oh let's go through some holding company examples. i was like dude i don't know that many examples <laughs> like this is not a a thing yeah, I, I think that's why people like the concept because it's interesting and most entrepreneurs are very creative so i was just always i was just curious about those two things like how'd you land in, you know community have you ever thought about changing it and why not talk about your holding company a lot more so 
I landed on community when I had some, you know, in 2020, 2020, I guess, I left WeWork, uh, where I was the head of product strategy uh, via an acquisition. And I had some time like you to think about what's next. And I looked at what is the common denominator of my entire career? And literally everything I had have done, both professionally and personally, at the core of it was community. I have never done anything that hasn't had community at its core. Um, and I had a list of theses and ideas in that space. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to make a conscious effort in 2020 to put out more content related to community. And I am completely okay being known as the community guy. Why? Because it's a small enough niche that, you know, at the time, no one was, not many people were, you know, focused on it. But it's a big enough niche that literally community is at the center of everything on the internet. Like if you're a yeah. creator, community is at the center of it. If you're a Web3 product, community is at the center of it. If you're a cult-like brand, community is at the center of it. So I think it's important for folks to pick something that, is small enough that you can own, but large enough that you can kind of grow with it. Have you ever thought about changing or like repositioning yourself out of community? Like when you were deep into Web3, becoming like the Web3 yeah. community guy or I don't know, like AI now or... Right. I just feel like I would look like a child wearing really big, like a really big <laughs> suit. <laughs> like I would look silly. I wouldn't be able to wake up in the morning and just Got it. like, yeah. yeah, put another way. Like it's just not authentic. Yeah. And although yeah. I would probably be able to grab another few hundred thousand followers if I would, you know, pivoted my way into something else, I, yeah, I wouldn't be excited about it. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to the whole like, quote unquote, retirement. Like in my mind, I'm retired in that yeah. sense, right? Yeah. You know, I'm doing things for, for style points more than money. And <laughs> it's a good place to be. And the style points on doing something that I'm not excited about content wise, especially because you're putting yourself out there, would not be cool. Yeah. For me. And then why not talk about your personal holding company more? Because I, I remember when I like went to your Twitter, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Click on it. And it was just like, oh, I kind of understand it, but I feel like you could be a lot more vocal about it because you are working on a lot of interesting things and you are yeah. doing a lot of interesting things and you could also be a great example for other entrepreneurs to follow. So why not talk about it a lot more? I wrote a post in 2020, which was why the future of startups are studios. Welcome to the golden age of product studios. And I talked about my decision to create a studio, but more, more importantly, a personal holding company, because I talk about, you know, service businesses. And this is up on my Substack for people to check out. You can just Google, Google yeah, that and it'll come out. And I talk about like why you shouldn't raise venture and why service businesses is actually a really good place to start and how to think about launching experiments and how to think about a thesis for your startup studio. I got some people excited about it, but then when I like compare that to like a post, I, a popular post I did like 
the unbundling of Reddit, like that got a hundred times more <laughs> or a thousand times more traffic than the, stu- yeah. the studio stuff. So I should, the, the short answer is I should write more about personal holding companies because I'm learning about it in real time. And because there's not enough, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of information out there. This reminds me of like tech startups, like 15 years ago when I, when I first like entered that space in my career, there was just not a lot of information on the internet. Right. So it wasn't like, it wasn't a Y Combinator. There's very little written about like, even like how to analyze a term sheet. And then today it's like, dude, there's so much, there's like too much information. And I kind of feel like holding companies are kind of similar, right? So holding companies, like if you Google it, it's like a lot of legal definitions and corporate holding companies, but there's not examples, you know, just hearing you talk about like a startup studio and then the service business to start to then, you know, generate cash flow to then reinvest into all these other things you want to do. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, and it's not a theory anymore because you've already done it for a couple of years now. So like, what did it work? You know, what part didn't work? What would you do differently? You know, save me two years of making a mistake. So I have written a lot online and the holding company definitely over the past six months has been one of the bigger surprises because I kind of wrote it like walking down the street. Oh, personal holding company. That's, you know, because I was trying to think of something to explain to someone what what I'm thinking about doing next. And that one tweet, while didn't like get a lot of traction, it got enough where I was like, oh man, there's definitely interest in this, especially in 2022 coming 2023. I, I totally agree. I like I'm I'm feeling like I don't know if it's the coffee or the conversation or both, but I'm feeling like actually pretty excited to talk about this more publicly. There is a lot I've learned, um, yeah, especially around sure. the service service business stuff. Like, for example, we run this design agency and in the beginning we were doing a lot of like short term two week design sprint type deals. Now we've moved to, you know, I'd say 90% of our revenue is long-term 12-month-plus deals with the largest companies in the world. And why does that make sense? Well, it's just predictable cash flow. You know, one of the bad things about an agency model is you're kind of, you know, always on the hunt, quote-unquote, for your next deal. Yeah. And I think what I love about our model is... You know, when you're signing these long-term deals, like it's not that case at all. And uh, that's like a lesson I would love to talk more about. Yeah. And, there's, and there's more of that. So if the money comes in from these big corporations, I'm assuming there's like a percentage of that that's kind of left over their profits. Do you reinvest that? Where do you, where do you reinvest that? Do you take it out of the business? Do you invest to companies or buying companies or start? Like, how are you thinking about I guess reinvesting that cash within the holding company. It's like super old school uh, if you think about it, but we do a good old fashioned profit share two times a year, which is actually really awesome for folks because like, you you know this, like when you work for a startup and you talked about it, like you don't see liquidity for seven, 10 plus years sometimes. Um, So it's pretty awesome that folks who join Late Checkout, like every six months they're getting a check. I noticed like the Gen Z younger folks, like they love the instant gratification of like, cool, like I'm going to go on vacation or I'm going to go yeah. buy this, like whatever. We do uh, want to compound the money. And that's why we have, 
you know, a pretty big budget for our startup studio where we're incubating our own products and companies, as well as a budget for companies to buy. And I actually think that like right now going to 2023, there's, you know, going to be more and more distressed assets. There's going to be more and more companies that are uh, venture funded that are not going to make it. And there's opportunities to pick them up for reasonable and fair prices. So I'm trying to keep that cash so that we can be opportunistic and pick up several of those companies. You know, I feel like we could go a whole other hour or just talk through all this stuff because I'm like so curious now. How big is how big is the holding company? And have you found it like a pain in the ass to like manage like all these people again? I have an incredible co-founder and COO who is like keeps the train on the tracks. So I don't even need to, you know, really think about the train on the tracks. How big's the team now? And because I imagine if you're like got an agency, going to be buying companies. So you're going to be scouting those and someone has to run those and then you're incubating things. So there's probably like a whole process around coming up with ideas, vetting them and kind of like, you know, like V 0.1 just to like dip your toe in the pool. And they're like, Oh, that kind of worked. And then you have to like invest more resources and time into those things. So that's, that's a lot of things to be doing. It is. It's, it's a lot of things. And that's the hard part about this model, I think is the yeah. focus. You know, when you have a team, you know, I think we're like 40 plus team members. So when you have a team, you can do anything in terms of like, you can build a startup, you can, you know, work on this, you can work on this agency. You know, I think that's the hardest part about building a startup studio or a personal holding company is the fact that I think it was uh, Scott Belsky, actually, who who once told me constraint fuels creativity. Oh, for sure. It definitely um, does. Sounds like a, a Belskyism. Um, <laughs> it's completely right, and I think that that's another lesson I learned from personal holding companies and startup studios is that you do need to create some constraints on the business so that people basically don't work on anything, and that also, you know, one of the thing, one of the constraints that we put on our our agency business, for example, is we only accept one new client per month. Um, oh, that's awesome. And we started doing that, you know, a year ago because we realized like we had a lot of inbound for, for client work and we would just take client work and it's, it's about taking the right client work. So just in general, I think like having constraints on your service business and then having constraints on your studio is really, really important. I'm, I am really passionate and excited about PHCs, personal holding companies, because it allows me and my team, I think, to be the most creative version of themselves. What I didn't like about working at a tech startup was that like, I was like pigeonholed into this like space for seven years or six years or whatever. And the Achilles heel that we talked about around you can do anything is also the most fun part about it. I can definitely relate. Kind of similar to you, I did the whole tech startup thing and well, this is like a limiting belief. I would I told myself is like there's a very narrow definition of what a founder CEO should be, very operational, very analytical, like super visionary, blah blah blah, like conscious leadership and all this stuff. And over time, you know, 
I guess my career in that world is like 15 years, but over time, as it become less creative, it, it was just not fun anymore. So I, 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 that's what I like about the PhDs is, man, you have this like whole spectrum of things that you can possibly do, but it's so hard to, you know, it's like kind of what we were talking about becoming content creator is like figuring out what you're ex what you're going to be known for. Same thing with like what you're going to build. Dude, there's so many things you could possibly do. And speaking of another Belskyism, um, which is like the idea to idea syndrome where you get so excited by idea, you kind of start working on it like, oh, this sucks. What's really exciting is coming up with a new idea and then going down that path. And when it gets hard, you just keep flip-flopping. And then, you know, over a year or two, you don't actually execute anything. So um, I think that's probably the balance and the challenge is nearing in and focusing within a world where you have like unlimited things that you could possibly be doing. Um, but that's also what I love about it is it just becomes so personalized to what you want to do. And it's not going to be a one size fits model for anyone. I agree. And I also think that while starting a PhD is very much playing for style points, there are also incredible businesses. Oh yeah, and for sure. I, I feel like most entrepreneurs should probably do that because one you're diversified and the problem with tech startups is you're not like still like you know majority of my net worth is tied into very liquid stock so you can diversify you get cash along the way to reinvest or pull out for your personal use um it's extremely creative you know if something does take off great you know like you know that that's also the problem with a lot of like really early investing for pre-seed pre-ideas like um, you don't really know what's going to take off. And like, if I were to spin something out of a personal loan company, I would want to do it after I feel very confident that it has a great, a good probability of scaling, not this grand idea I have that I, I'm convincing myself and you that it's going to be big. It's like, oh no, it's totally going to work. Cause you know, we already test out and this is like the 42nd idea that we've launched. So I know, and then I know you and I have talked about this on Twitter too, which is, um, raising zero outside capital or, yeah. you know, I, I talked about raising one round and keeping the team as small as possible, which is like every entrepreneur's dream. It's like, I have a super small team. They're all like great what they do. They work on multiple things. And if something takes off and just blows up, great. Like we could, you know, triple down on that. But uh, I hope that more entrepreneurs like take a different approach. You know, I think right now it's very popular, like repeat founders some type of exit so you, you do have that time freedom but i do hope that people that are content creators can then you know they're perfect i think for it's like repeat founders from tech world and content creators are perfect today for a phc totally yeah i think uh the biggest phc founders are gonna be con content creators oh i mean we're already seeing that with mr beast yeah um and I think I don't know why all these YouTubers do D to C businesses because I'm like, dude, like, there's a whole world out there that's like, like digital where you don't have to ship like physical items. So, I think what I think Mr. B should do, tangential, I think he should launch a gaming studio um, or something that's more digital than physical products. But I think we will see a billion dollar PHC. I mean, I think I guess we've already seen it with Mr. Beast. I think we'll see a lot more over the next couple of years. Mr. Beast is like, he's involved with night media, right? 
Yes. So I don't know if he's a co-founder there. Is he a co-founder there? I'm not sure, but from the light and analyzing, I've just done an all creators like, you know, Silicon Valley is Northern California. Hollywood's obviously based in Southern California. A lot of like the incubation startup studio is comes more from like the Hollywood model versus the Silicon Valley model. So if you're like a YouTuber and you have like million plus, you know, tens of millions of subscribers, I would follow a more Silicon Valley model. That, that's that's definitely what I would do versus like uh, D to C or do both. Well, I mean, for D to C, like Mr. Beast, for example, you know, what's it called Feastables, his chocolate bar. Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's cool. It's really cool. And I love how it is. Yeah. Like he did the Willy Wonka healthy. healthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really cool. But I think, you know, what's even cooler is like 97% margins on game on game. <laughs> yeah. And a gaming company. Cause he's yeah. also into gaming too. He's like, dude, like launch the next Fortnite, bro. Yeah. Like you're in North Carolina, like Epic games is down the street from you. Like launch a gaming company down the street from Epic recruit, like all the top people there and just create the next Fortnite. Yeah. So maybe partner, maybe he's right? partner huh? with someone like he can or, yeah, definitely don't do it in house. Like don't do it in house. Buy a studio. I agree though, like he should, you know, Mr. Beast, if you're listening or, or team, like please go digital. Go like, digital. <laughs> yeah. You get higher multiples on your valuation. Yeah. You don't have to deal with I mean, yeah, I feel like he's pretty diverse. And like if I was like looking at his portfolio, like, dude, you're you're pretty deep into physical products. Let's let's try to do digital one next. Let's yeah. just diversify. Um, all right, man. Well, predictions for for content creators, like where does the world of content creation and creators look like in in five years from now? I think we'll see a lot more billion dollar companies that are PhDs from content creators. I, I think I don't, I don't want to make predictions on like tech with AI and all the you know, but I th- I do think we'll see sizable businesses evolve out of it, and I can see a lot more creators taking that path versus what I call like the traditional playbook, which is like build audience, drop a course drop some merch, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I could see them moving be like, okay, that, that kind of worked for a time. Oh, that guy launched a business and it sold for 3 billion. Let's do that. And I, I could see that becoming more and more normal. Um, I could see that being a clear path for a lot of, a lot of content creators, you know, once they kind of build an audience. I love it. All right. And, uh, if you want to hear more from Mike, where can we, where can people find you? Website's Mike Carnage, M-I-K-E-K-M-I-K-E-K-A-R-N-J.com or just Mike Carnage on Twitter. Cool. Worth the follow. Uh, great content. And if you're listening to this and you want more PHC content from, from me and Mike, honestly, just tweet us um, and uh, comment on this YouTube video with any questions you have about PHC. Uh, we, can, we can use that as sort of a discussion ground. Um, And of course, subscribe if you haven't subscribed already to the Where It Happens pod. Thanks for coming on, Mike. You are Mm -hmm. the GOAT. I feel like we're going to be hearing a lot more from you on on PHE's content creation, money, wealth. Not enough people talk about this. So thank you for speaking up. Thanks for having me.